Welcome to the podcast of ideas. I'm Adam Rawcliffe. Uh, so the UK has had a weekend to digest last week's shock election results that brought about a hung parliament. The largest party, the Conservatives, are hoping to form a government with the Democratic Unionist Party of Northern Ireland, uh, and May has received much criticism for a botched campaign with George Osborne calling her a dead woman walking. Labour have been vitriolic, uh, acting as if they won, even though they lost. And Corbyn has vowed to push his manifesto pledges in Parliament, as well as refusing to rule out another election, either this year or early next year. Elsewhere, attempts to figure out the vote have highlighted incredibly high youth turnout, as well as the middle classes going over to the Labour Party, whilst the Tories have grown in poorer areas of the country. To discuss all the election fallout, I'm joined by the Institute of Ideas director, Claire Fox, author of That Existential Leap, A Crime Story, Dolan Cummings, and Institute of Ideas associate director, Alistair Donald. Uh, so to kick off, why don't we talk about uh, the Conservatives forming a new government? Do you think they're going to be able to get it done this week? Uh, and what are the implications of having the DUP involved, Claire? They're desperate to form a new government, and there's no reason why the DUP won't help them do that, not as a coalition, but in the way that people have suggested on a, 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 a pragmatic basis. It's a pretty desperate state of affairs for the Tories, but nonetheless, I think the reshuffle indicates that Theresa May, or rather possibly behind her, the 1922 committee, are pretty serious about ensuring that they retain power and there has been an undue amount of hysteria about the DUP, um, largely from people who have not followed Northern Irish politics ever and don't know who they are and have only just discovered them. For those of us who've been following for some time, we're more than familiar with some of the more unsavoury aspects of the DUP, its past and so on, but it's really been unpleasant to watch the attempts at saying the DUP are all terrorists and that's been one line, oh, you accused um, Jeremy Corbyn of being pro-IRA, but these are the real terrorists, they're kind of harking back to UDA murders and so on. Um, so, you know, playing the past again. Or on the other hand, um, a lot of uh, feminists concerned about the DUP's position on abortion and uh, then, of course, on, on gay marriage. Just very quickly, because maybe we can talk about this in, in more detail, I... I th- I don't, on the one hand, it's now been noted that um, the Labour Party in various guises, from Gordon Brown to Ed Miliband, have considered doing deals with the DUP to get into power. Uh, it's also been revealed that the SNP uh, also suggested that they'd do deals with the, the DUP. The DUP are part of a ruling coalition in a part of the United Kingdom, as they say, allegedly, uh, certainly in the way that it's been seen by Britain, so to suddenly start saying we can't possibly work with these people when in fact they have been part of the peace process that everyone has raved on about just seems on the one hand um, an anti-Tory stance and also has revealed some very unsavoury intolerance of religious uh, conscience because a number of these things are driven by uh, their religious conscience. Yeah, I mean on the DUP I think whatever you think about them they are freshly elected, it's not even as if it's been a while, it's just straight out of the, ele- the election. Um, so I think it's maybe a reminder that uh, um, the kind of political centre is not um, as uniform as people would like to think, that the political culture is different in Northern Ireland. But yeah, I think that in terms of the, the, the Tories, 
um, will have to keep them on board to some extent, but they also have to hold together. And that's, I, th- I think, a big issue because, you know, with a slim, a slim um, majority or no majority, you need um, to have make sure that everyone's going to back the party. There's always a danger that you can be held to ransom by people who want you know, particular agendas. So it doesn't have to be the EUP that are, that are making demands. It could be elements of the Tory party itself. And I think the most important um, element that we should be talking about is the, the, the Brexit aspect, because that wasn't really as big a part of the election as it should have been, I think. Um, there's a broad consensus, I think, in the, in the Tory party to go ahead with it. Um, there's some support from Labour as well, but things didn't really divide, you know, and people are saying, well, the, the, the fact that, that she couldn't get a majority means May doesn't have a mandate for hard Brexit, which is to say being completely out of the common market and so on. But of course, the one party that was standing on a compromise form of Brexit, the Lib Dems, did considerably worse than the Tories. And Labour, who were kind of muddling, nobody really knows what their position um, was, I don't think they have a uniform position, and um, they didn't do well either. So there's no mandate for soft Brexit either. <laughs> We just get the same kind of blank check that we had from the referendum itself, effectively. Um, and it's a real shame that the, the, the election wasn't an opportunity to clarify that. Yeah, uh, well, just to go back to the DUP for a minute, I, I mean, I, I think it's, uh, on the one hand, you look at their manifesto that they stood on, and, you know, there's some stuff that uh, more liberal leftish people in this country, in, in England, Wales, Scotland, would support. They, they seem to want uh, infrastructure investment, investment in industry. Uh, they were for protecting the triple lock on pensions and uh, uh, universal uh, winter fuel allowance. So mm-hmm. <laughs> some of the things that they're putting forward are things that on the face of it you'd have thought that people would be keen to support. On the social conservative stuff that everybody's up in arms about, um, it does seem to me that there's they're kind of coming in for a hammering, um, but to some extent you might say a little bit unfairly. I mean, on the, on the abortion stuff... Uh, if if there was a a vote on abortion in in Ireland, um, it's all the major parties that would would uh, be against it. So it's not just them. Um, on the the gay marriage, uh, it's, it's we, I think we need to remember that it's only in the last three years or so that everybody seems to have come round uh, to 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 the idea of gay marriage. So while there's been some fairly you know unsavoury comments about uh, attitudes to gays in general, it does seem to me that there's a there's the way that gay marriage is used these days is a kind of virtue signalling desire for recognition of particular section of society. It's more uh, a question of uh, reinforcing an identity politics uh, form of politics. Uh, I, I just wanted to come back in now on the on the coalition mm. um, and the impact for Brexit. I mean, one of the fascinating things about the media coverage over the weekend, all of the TV, big political shows, um, and then this morning on the Today programme is the only discussion is Brexit. And it's fascinating because everybody's talking about the election as though it was a decisive factor on Brexit and what now for Brexit. But as we know, during the campaign, there was no discussion on Brexit. But I think that I'm torn slightly because I want to be able to say, as others have done, if you voted for Labour or you voted for the Tories, that means you voted for Brexit because the Labour Party was... But I feel as though I might be cheating. I mean, mm. there is at least ambivalence around this question. John MacDonald on the, over the you know, weekend made it clear that he... Or he said we'd have to leave the single market. Uh, Corbyn was a bit fudgier. Um, certainly the Labour Party are saying that Brexit is a done deal, and that is undoubtedly partially why um, the uh, UKIP vote was able to split both ways and why a lot of 
working class Brexit people did then vote Labour, although that's not the full story, of course, of that vote, but voted Labour because once you think that Brexit is a resolved issue and everyone's pro-Brexit, then you look at what the parties have on offer and, you know, make your decision based on that. But I think the fact that we now are dominated by a discussion about Brexit would indicate that it really was the Brexit um, election and that's why Theresa May has made a complete mess of it. I think that it is something of a stroke of genius to have brought Michael Gove back into government. The lack of understanding by a lot of Liberal commentators is why would she bring in Michael Gove, who is hated by teachers? Um, <laughs> it's like sort of, yeah, moving on. Or why would, you know, or he's not a popular person. We're actually um, bringing him into the environment uh, position means that he has to um, work with and deal with the farmers that uh, and uh, were at least split in relation to Brexit, and many of them, in fact, voted for Brexit. Also, it means that he's in Cabinet... It shows Theresa May making something of an effort to, to you know, go against her, her petty-minded instincts that had punished people that she didn't agree with before. But a lot of the people she's brought into positions of power were prominent Remainers as well. So, But I think that what she's trying to do, or as I say, whether it's her, is to try and make sure that Brexit happens. And they are sounding as that way. Just a little note on... on um, uh, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, the advisers who were uncere- unceremoniously dumped and or uh, resigned. I think the, the attempt at uh, kind of blaming them for the dysfunctional election campaign was obviously um, slightly unworthy. But I think when you, uh, you know, and, and kind of in a way um, uh, missed the point, took our eye off the ball. However, when you do look at the dysfunctional character of what was going on, all the reports that have come out of kind of backbiting, bullying, nastiness, kind of closed-minded. I think that what you can see there is a technocracy in action where they didn't really believe in anything. And so it really could get down to personality politics and stabbing people in the back and so on and so forth. There was no real vision at the heart of, part, of the, of the party that took them into that election. And I think that lack of vision is not there. I mean, that's not resolved yet. And that will be the thing which will make them fall apart in the end. Brexit is the only vision-encompassing idea, but they've got to make that feel more than just a negotiation. Um, it's got to be, as, as, as Alice has pointed out, maybe the DUP, with some quite inspiring stuff on infrastructure and industrial strategy, would have been something which the Tories could learn from uh, in terms of making Brexit feel like a real thing. Yeah. Uh, so it certainly seems that May has been humiliated by this election and when they go on to form the next government uh, there'll be a lot of forces pulling at her uh, from all angles, be that the 1922 committee, uh, be that from a man like Michael Gove who isn't exactly known for loyalty, uh, the pressure of working with the DUP. Uh, do you think she can survive this either in the short term or the long term? An anonymous Tory source came out over the weekend and said We'll keep her for now because there's no other choice, but she's never going to fight another election for the Conservative Party. Yeah, my guess would be that she'll um, survive in the short term and not in the long term. But then my guess was that she'd win a decent majority, so it's very difficult to predict these things. I think everyone's, a lot of people have said that the election was a gamble that backfired. Um, I, I don't actually think we can say that with confidence because the campaign was so bad. You know, it's a bit like backing, betting on your football team to win a match and then scoring several home goals. You know, it's not necessarily the bet that's the problem. Um, and I think maybe that that, that was to the, the the lack of, of strategic thinking and vision that, that, that Claire mentioned. 
Um, what's kind of interesting though is that the vote share was actually not bad, um, pretty good. I mean, it was like it's up there with some of Thatcher's victories, um, which I haven't examined in mm. detail. Maybe yeah. that indicates that they did pick up some votes in, in traditional Labour seats, but just didn't do well enough to win the seats that any Tory government depends on. Um, and that's just, I mean, that shows that basic, basic politics has changed mm. and that you can't just keep keep doing the same thing I expect. I mean, the real gamble for, for me was thinking she could do as little as possible and win. If she basically said nothing, head from the TV debates, and just let the polls hold out, please, um, then then it would have been fine. But clearly, there might be some election campaigns where the campaign itself doesn't make a huge amount of difference from the way it made up their minds. This was certainly not one of those elections. Um, and, and you know, So the other un- unpredictable thing, of course, was she thought, well, Corbyn's in charge of Labour, they won't do anything. Of course, that was proved spectacularly um, wrong as well. But I think because you, you can't make the assumptions about who's going to vote for it in particular areas, it's just an indication that things have changed. Yeah, I think the point about it being the election being incredibly tight is really valid. I think just a few thousand votes in the right places, and the Tories could have had a massive, massive majority. So it was incredibly close. Uh, but back to this, do you, Alistair, do you think, and to sort of bring in the Brexit uh, discussions again, uh, with Labour planning to be an incredibly strong, uh, difficult opposition, uh, with May not having a complete leadership of her party, having to handle the DUP, uh, do you think this is going to impact the Brexit negotiations or even having a workable government in the next year or so? Well, the, the talk over the last couple of days has been very much uh, towards opening up the decision on Brexit to re-examination, I think, if you listen to yeah. someone like Michael Heseltine uh, on the, the, the television yesterday, um, very much saying that uh, May needs to now do a, her party a service and, and, and reconsider. So while she's uh, come out and said we're going to push on through with this, I think there's um, all sorts of forces that are emerging that are going to be reined against her, which is is going to cause uh, significant problems because it's the the way that things are being interpreted is that um, it's 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 now been said that the vote uh, was a mandate against hard Brexit, um, whether you uh, accept the hard soft Brexit uh, uh, division is irrelevant. It's, it's now been claimed that the, the election was um, a vote against hard Brexit. So this, I think at the very least, uh, brings back into the centre of discussion uh, what it is that's uh, to be achieved over the next couple couple of uh, years because uh, having been clear in the manifesto that at the end of two years it would either be a deal and we'd leave or if we couldn't achieve the deal uh, we'd leave anyway uh, that 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 does se- seem to um, be called into question again and I think um, Labour also obviously had it in their manifesto some level of commitment to to Brexit although as, as Dolan has said we, we kind of don't really know what they really thought but um, having John McDonald gone on yesterday and sort of stressed uh, the commitment to leaving. Barry Gardner this morning has, has come out and said um, maybe we need to now look at staying. So obviously there's divisions there within within the parties. So I, th- I think it, it just, the really telling issue has been that having called this election on the basis of Brexit, they failed to bring forward a credible sort of political imagination about what that would mean, not just in terms of the technical process of leaving the EU, but how it could completely uh, transform the way that we thought about all aspects of, of British life. And 
I think that in order to regain the initiative, they really need to start putting some uh, fleshing out some of uh, that, these ideas around what Brexit could actually mean. That being said, though, ironically, in this parliament, hard Brexiters are going to have a bigger say than they had beforehand. Uh, May's not going to be able to get away from her backbench MPs now. Uh, she doesn't have a big enough majority to drown them out. The DUP are very much pro or hard Brexit. There's going to be a lot of hard Brexit voices in there. I, I wouldn't be too sure, actually. I, I think that the strength of... I think that, that those voices are there, but I think the strength of the anti-democratic trends that predate this um, this election and were much you know discussed uh, by us and others in relation to the response to the vote to leave the EU are actually gaining confidence and I think that's uh, it's worth remembering because um, Dolan has rightly reminded us of the kind of complete realignment of politics and how the political parties aren't just as we might think Sometimes when you hear this discussion, you'd think that the Tory party were a Brexit party. But the Tory party led the Remain campaign. As we know, Corbyn has been criticised for a rather lacklustre Labour-Remain campaign that didn't quite ever do much um, and, and kind of uh, staggered on. Whereas it was the Tories, absolutely. Most of that cabinet, the whole of the Tory party, uh, against maybe their voters, but that's not the point I'm making. So... It hasn't just, you know, there's been a lot of people over the weekend saying things like, well, I'm now not sure. I can't remember who runs the Scottish um, um, Conservative Party. Rhys Davidson saying, maybe we should go for a soft Brexit. You know, it, and then you've got this split in the Labour Party, which is that that indicates the realignment in exactly that way, which is, is it Corbyn and MacDonald and some people to one side huge swathes of the Parliamentary Labour Party are Remain. And Barry Gardner has been particularly weak on this. And he's one of the people they've nominated as a possible negotiator had they got into power. So you can see that it's not straightforward. Um, one interesting uh, aside has been that, to my surprise, I've spent the weekend uh, agreeing with a, a variety of high-profile Remoners, as the, uh, uh, the derogatory term A.C. Grayling, uh, Ian Dunt, who calls himself a Romaniac, uh, Fiona Miller, uh, 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 you know, kind of leading uh, proponents of Remain, who have basically said there's no such thing as soft Brexit. There's only hard Brexit or no Brexit. And they're ironically saying that the le they're, they're also criticising Corbyn this way. They're, they're basically saying that Corbyn can't be relied upon <laughs> to be anti-Brexit and soft Brexit is a nonsense. And it's a kind of weird thing that they, even though they, they if they supported the uh, Lib Dems, were, were humiliated, they themselves can see that there's a kind of tension that still makes Brexit the, the only game in town. And I think that only game in town is yet capable of ensuring an implosion within both main political parties that we've not even begun to see the the, 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 uh, the outcome of yet. Yeah, I think one interesting thing is that um, one, if I were if I were anti-Brexit, which I'm not, but if I wanted to stop it, I think the one kind of way they might be able to do it while sparing democratic blushes was for David Cameron to call an election immediately after the referendum. Mm -hmm. Say, look, I've lost, I've blown it, I've lost my mandate. Let's put it, put it to the country and have a political debate about it. The reason that he didn't do that, that the political class was not keen on doing it, is they just assumed that the that Brexit would, would, would win, that whichever party stood against Brexit would be defeated, which might have been true, I'm told it would be true, 
But actually, after this election, that seems less clear. I mean, maybe, maybe it would be possible to, 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 to win it back that way. And the more it drifts, and then the more you have, well, we've just had a fresh election, and most people voted for MPs who, are, who remain, if that were to happen at some point in the future. Then you'd say, well, that Trump's a referendum a few years ago. Um, so that's, 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 that's more of a possibility now, which is why it's, 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 much, it's really important that people should be put, put forwarding a, a clear um, vision of what they mean by Brexit and what we, and what we would achieve. Because this is one of the questions, the legitimate question put by anti-Brexit people saying, what, does, what do you want the British government to do now that it can't do as a, as a member of the EU? And, you know, we could talk about private renationalising the railways, um, whatever, you know, those are the kind of things that we talked about, but, but actually we could talk about much more ambitious infrastructure um, and, you know, government involvement in, in promoting industry. I mean, maybe that's too old-fashioned, but it's something that we should at least be debating, um, and that's not been happening. Yeah, I think the one of the interesting things is, you know, as Claire has, has said, that, that um, having, be, having uh, been instinctively Remain, the Tory party has been forced into uh, going with the, the Brexit vote and, and leading the campaign against Brexit through the, through the uh, general election campaign. And one of the interesting things about the, the way that the voting patterns seem to be uh, emerging is, is that the, the people who voted for the Tory party were substantially uh, uh, leavers. So, so something around about seven out of every ten people that voted Tory um, were leave. So having for quite a number of months talked about the problems that the Labour Party has had in bridging the divide between their traditional constituency, which has gone leave, and their new constituency in the South, the more wealthy South, which has instinctively remained, it may be the case that the Tory party have a real problem uh, in, in the coming period because having uh, br you know, attracted a, a support on the basis that they would uh, deliver Brexit, um, if they are opening up the discussion and trying to retreat again, then that is not going to be an easy thing to manage. And it's quite interesting what from the uh, Lord Ashcroft um, survey, um, he highlighted the way that people who voted Tory decided very early that they were going to vote Tory. So it suggests a fairly strong uh, commitment on that basis that the Tories were going to deliver Brexit. The Labour Party, on the other hand, very uh, relatively few leavers voting for the Labour Party. And uh, what his data showed is, is that people decided very late in the campaign to actually go to the Labour Party, which to me uh, seems to suggest much less of a commitment to what the Labour Party is doing. So they've done very well in the election, but will they be able to uh, carry it on? I, I, th I, th I think that's a, a real question. And the, the, the sense seems to be that um, the, the people who have voted Labour are much more concerned about the NHS and cuts in public services, uh, which is, is again something that um, people who work in public services and people who've seen their wages uh, squeezed, middle classes have seen their wages squeezed, are, are, are much more concerned about. So there's a kind of interesting new map of political I hesitate to use the word loyalties, but uh, attachments, even even temporary, emerging in which class seems on the face of it to play less of a role, and all sorts of other things are coming to the fore: age, education, and some of the other stuff that we talked about. Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting point. Uh, a lot of the trends emerging seem to be that more and more middle class people uh, are moving over to the Labour Party. Uh, the big ones in Kensington and Canterbury. Uh, sort of highlight this and that the Conservatives are skewing now more towards 
what was formerly the working class or poorer geographical areas of the country. Uh, Claire, do you think class, uh, geography or education level are better indicators of how people are going to vote? Uh, can we even divide people along these lines? Well, I, I actually think, if anything, class might have made a bit of a comeback um, <laughs> as, a, as an issue in relation to this, in as much as, for the reasons that you said, which is a lot of working class people voted leave and they moved to the Tories and things like that. Although I, I, I think to sort of say... Um, I think the majority of people who voted Labour would remain, but the substantial point is a substantial minority of Leavers voted for Corbyn, which is what that group of people which the uh, Labour Party took um, for granted, and uh, that was a real mistake. I, I think that the Labour Party has for some time represented um, that white-collar worker, public sector worker. I mean, I... I, get, I always get a bit nervous about saying they're the middle classes. I mean, they're just, it's, it's the new jobs, you know what I mean? I mean, you know, where are the coal miners? There aren't any, right? So um, to a certain extent, they're a very mixed bunch. I mean, people who work in the NHS might be consultants who live in Kensington, but they might be care workers in your local home, right? So, you, you, you know, it's a mixture of, of types of people. But undoubtedly, um, one thing that has played in this election is austerity. And there is a sense in which people are feeling what it feels like to live in a society whose economy is not dynamic and that cuts, are, are, you know, it's not just like cuts people whinging about cuts, it's people who've seriously um, not got enough, you know, disposable income and worried about the future and so on and so forth. And I think that, that um, you know, you can lampoon the Labour Party and say, oh, they just promised, you know, money growing on trees and, and free stuff and they bribed everyone. But it's also the case that the um, austerity budgets of the, the associated with the Tories, which, by the way, they then refused to argue for in the election period even, uh, because you actually can make an argument for them. Actually, I don't think austerity economics are the way forward either. And one of the opportunities of Brexit for me, uh, at the very least, was an, uh, a chance to reimagine economic development and growth. And it's not just kind of industrial strategy, it's things like science has been held back by an undue amount of um, EU regulation, for example. Uh, there's been all sorts of ways that um, using the EU as an excuse for why you couldn't do things has meant that uh, big business has got away with uh, not developing. Why have those infrastructure projects not happened? So I actually think that an anti-austerity budget that's not based on the state stepping in, which is the Labour Party, could be still inspiring for a lot of people. I want to, to be able to write off the Labour Party doing better, although losing, than was anticipated by saying it's loads of posh people voting for them. But I also feel that that's a slightly cowardly way out of trying to understand a more complicated set of dynamics. Yeah, I think someone wrote over the weekend that the Labour manifesto wouldn't be possible if we were still part of the EU that's anyway. True. So that's something worth considering. Uh, any more thoughts on class, uh, geography, how we divide the vote? Well, just one thing noting is that uh, the Labour Party have kind of held on to a certain vote. I think they've got, they've got new votes. Um, but it would be really interesting, for example, in Vauxhall, where Kate Hoy, prominent um, Brexit, there was a huge campaign to unseat her in the middle of terms, and she actually increased her vote. So people are maybe just clearly, you get the impression there from, from the discussion, certainly around the referendum itself, that it was the one thing in central London everyone cared about, the more passionate Remainers. 
But actually, probably that was always a small minority. And, and most people decided, well, let's just get on and, and vote, vote on the basis that, that we, we support the Labour Party mm-hmm. for traditional reasons that we've all supported the Labour Party. So there's, there's an element of that as well as what's changing. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the, the also the, the problem with the Labour Party's emphasis on the public sector also is connected to the EU as well, isn't it? Because I think there's a lot of EU funding yeah. involved in, in, in the public spe- sector. And you know, after the referendum, people were saying, oh, look at these idiots who voted for Brexit in areas that depend on EU funding. And actually, you know, surprise, surprise, being dependent does not actually make you feel grateful and, and, and want to be close to something. I think there is a, a striving for independence, a resentment even at the fact of being dependent on, on the EU and the public sector. So, so that, that again it opens up space for some kind of vision. Can we imagine private sector growth? You know, it's 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 very difficult to cut in the public sector when that's the only source of funds people have, the only opportunity for jobs. If you had a dynamic private sector, then you could say, well we can cut away at the spent wood. But um, you know, the, the Tories can't say that at a time when it just means actually you're really unemployed, you're not gonna have the services that you need. Um, so we do need an alternative um, um, economic, and that's the, the, the ironic thing is the Labour Party stand for the economic status quo, effectively. The Tories for cutting it and replacing it with nothing. Uh, so finally, uh, a common narrative this weekend has been that everybody lost this election, but also kind of won. Uh, I think one of the big winners who hasn't been talked about is the public. To me, it seems this election was launched as a way of trying to shut down politics again. May wanted to win a massive majority so that she didn't have to deal with the uh, political hubbub which has arisen around Brexit and she could sort of get on and do good political work uh, as she sees it. Uh, but she's been in, she hasn't been able to do that. The Brexit referendum was seen as a way that Cameron could shut down uh, the EU issue for a generation. Same with the initial Scottish referendum, and none of those things have happened when you've put it to the public. So I think the public's one of the big winners. Just along these lines, are the public going to demand another election in the near future? Alistair? Um, I don't know if I've got my crystal ball uh, here to, to be able to judge that. I mean, I, I, I just think that the, the trends are, as, as, as you say, actually, is, is that um, the election was worth having because it's um, been another step in uh, pushing politics back into the public sphere, which I think is, is something to, to, to celebrate. I think um, the one thing that uh, you've got to think that's come out of this election is that the authority of government uh, is is uh, no longer very substantial. In fact, it's interesting to see the elections in France this morning as well, which which um, again have you know the, the French, in order to reclaim some form of stability, seem to have uh, had to entirely ditch the two long-standing mainstream parties and go for a temporary solution uh, based around Macron's new movement. But looking at the turnout in the French elections today, um, it's very low. It's less than half, historically low in France. So. Um, um, the, you, coming on top of the vote in the, fre- uh, the presidential election in France where t- there was 25% abstentions, there's obviously a problem with authority and I think that's the, the same situation in Britain just now. And pushing these discussions back into the, into the public sphere is a really important part of that and I think we really probably need to reject this sense that, um, and it came across in a couple of newspaper articles over the weekend, that there's too much democracy, that you know these things need to be taken back behind closed doors because elections are unpredictable. Well, 
I think that's good that elections are unpredictable. It shows that people can have a stake and have an influence. Um, I, I think that definitely, um, I mean, I've argued this before, but that the, the post-Brexit moment was a recognition that change is possible and that even in a, in a general election where each, count, each vote doesn't count, people wanted their vote to count in this election and you know, there was a very high turnout and so on and, and, and then things didn't go, as you say, the way the political elite might have anticipated or wanted. Uh, and, and certainly uh, kind of uh, political commentators were blindsided, all of them, uh, including uh, me. <laughs> it's not like as though I, I got it right. So, you know, that makes a kind of exciting atmosphere of anything is possible, but there's no doubt about it. There's instability in relation to this and, and there is a sense in which... Um, none of the political parties were good enough to win substantially, um, and we've dis- discussed that. But that is um, instability when it's based on nobody being good enough isn't necessarily something to celebrate. That that would be one thing. One group that is said to be the real winners in this election have been young people. They turned out to vote in their millions and, and, and a, a huge spike in, in uh, voting uh, generationally. Um, and I don't want to um, be, you know, mean-spirited about that. It's a very positive development. Uh, they were told after Brexit, in many ways, lots of people said, well, you know, you can't whinge about the, the vote, you didn't vote. Um, so they said, right, I'm going to vote. Um, and uh, that's been a, an interesting development. I also don't want to get into that moment where, you know, just like a lot of people said that people voted uh, in the EU referendum were stupid and thick and uninformed. I don't want to kind of suggest that all young people voted because they wanted free stuff or they're going to get their fees paid or that they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, daft and so on and so forth. However, however, and it is a however, it has been really unpleasant watching the commentary in relation to the young over the weekend, actually put forward not by the young, but by mainstream commentators, who have been fawning over the youth vote as though somehow it was the most well-informed, intelligent, brilliantly insightful, the only one that mattered in the whole election. And that this was, and it really was like um, all the old people who don't understand something, but thankfully we've got all these young people who seem to... Uh, seem to really have their finger on the pulse. And I think that over-flattery of young voters um, is unhelpful both to them and to the democratic spirit of any election, and we have to be very wary of it. And I I know that generational uh, treating people as a generational blob is the wrong thing to do, but I think it is significant. You asked earlier, Adam, about... Um, Education, but I think it's significant that in lots of university towns and lots of you know, it kind of was a, a, a we we have a particular outlook and a particular worldview, and it's not one that I actually generally agree with. So they might be young. It's great the younger dynamic and political. It doesn't mean they're right uh, just because they're young. And if we end up in a situation where we're not prepared to face down young people when they argue things that are politically naive, crass or downright backward, then that's a real problem. And it's not actually very, um, it's not honouring young people at all. Having said that, the Tory party managed to think that you didn't have to talk to a young person, that the way to win the youth vote was to attack the elderly vote, which seemed to me to be the particularly mad, uh, uh, you know, and shoot yourself in the foot. Young people want to have a dynamic sense of the future. And that has to be fought for. It certainly isn't a cheap ride. And so 
we now need to engage that generation of voters uh, in a more complicated, uh, sophisticated discussion about what politics can offer. Yeah, I think it's important also to recognise there isn't any hard data yet to suggest that young people make the difference. I don't think we, we, you don't write down your age when you, when you mm-hmm. vote. Um, so I mean, there's, in, there's indications that we've taken, but we're not sure. I think that's come out to one of the one of the ways people are trying to explain an unexpected election result. Because when it was when the election was called, there was a lot of cynicism saying, "Oh no, people don't want another um, election. People are fed up with politics." And actually, it turns out no, they're not. They actually want politics. And so you know, Theresa May who stands on saying, "Leave it to me." Um, and does very badly, and Corbyn, even though his, his politics are not really that popular, actually did seem to be offering people something, something to argue about, and that, that's a positive thing, I think. Um, you know, in Scotland, there was such a yearning for politics that people voted for parties that are effectively dead, you know, digging mm-hmm. up the Scottish Labour and Scottish Tories. Um, I think not because of anything they were getting right, but simply because people were an alternative to the SNP, which is also quite technocratic um, and, and uh, aloof from, 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 from day-to-day politics. So I think it's a good thing that there's a yearning for politics. Unfortunately, we don't have parties that really reflect anything new or dynamic, and that's that's the next step. I think if we did have that, then maybe people would want another election. I wouldn't put it down in the sense that there's so much fatigue. Certainly, I'd be quite happy to have someone to vote for. You know, I think it's quite depressing looking at the people standing in my constituency and thinking, what, what, what am I going to do with this? But I think, yeah, the, the more the more of a, of a debate we have about real alternatives, then we, maybe those parties can, can start to come into formation. Yes, I think whether you're young or old, I think it's quite obvious now that politics is about more than just voting in elections. It's about doing more than just going and writing your ex and then forgetting about it for five years. It's important that if you're young and you vote for the first time that you stay engaged, stay pressing the issues you think are important, but also that we don't forget older people as well. Uh, So if you enjoyed what you've listened to today, you can hear more at instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast. And you can also subscribe on iTunes uh, to hear uh, our, our weekly updates.